Chapter 14 Shanghai. Evan awoke an hour later and swiftly realized he was in the trunk of a car. He smelled the exhaust and the stench of grease, felt the cold dread of fear crawl up his spine, then passed out again. The next time Evan woke up, he stayed that way. He realized after a moment that he was on his back, lying on a hard floor. He turned his head from side to side slowly. As his vision unfuzzed, he looked around, thinking he must be in a warehouse somewhere. Huge crates surrounded him, and he could make out chains dangling from the ceiling. Outside could be heard the oddly calming lapping of water. The floor gently bobbed. Not a warehouse. A ship. I'm probably in the cargo hold. In the distance, Evan heard a ship's horn blow. He couldn't feel the vibration of the ship's engines running, so he knew they must still be in port. He could hear men's voices above him, some speaking in another language he thought might be Chinese. Evan sat up slowly and glanced at his watch. It was 2 a.m. He'd been out for at least four hours. He tried to shake the cobwebs out of his brain, adjusting his eyes to the dim light. His hands were bound with heavy rope. Evan struggled to his feet and immediately began walking, which was harder than anticipated. His brain was a bit short-circuited, the blow to his head making even simple actions nearly impossible. He stumbled around, searching for something sharp and jagged anything to get his hands free. He knew Arthur Strickler was behind his abduction, which made his situation even more chilling. He lurched over to what appeared to be a jagged beam, broken off out of the side of the bulkhead. Evan positioned himself with some difficulty and began the tedious process of sawing through the ropes. He heard more voices above, Men were tromping across the deck directly above him. New sounds, far too nearby, made Evan wince. A heavy click, and then the sound of the hatch to the cargo hold opening. Company was coming. Evan deduced the same goons who had dumped him here were about to pay a visit. He glanced down at the ropes in the half-light. The beam had cut midway through the hemp. He knew if he were caught like this, they'd just tie him up again, and maybe even bind his ankles and legs this time. He thought it best to pretend to be unconscious, so he went back to the crates where he had awakened and slumped down. Evan prayed this would work. Footsteps clambered down the ladder from above. Evan nearly closed his eyes, keeping them open a tiny bit hoping to get a good look at his captors. From his slumped position, he spotted two big sets of legs coming toward him, belonging no doubt to two very large men. He did not recognize their muttering voices, but considering Arthur Strickler's power and reach, the man more than likely had an army of mercenaries in his employ to do his bidding. They loomed over him. One kicked Evan in the leg with a hard sailor's shoe. Evan did his best not to react or cry out, 
but the pain was sharp, biting. If this kid only knew where he's gonna end up, one of the men laughed. You said it, Joe. You couldn't catch me dead in a place like Madagascar, the other guy mumbled. Must have done something pretty big to piss off the big man. Eh, big man has always got it out for someone. Amazing how many of his enemies he has on any given day. Then they just disappear. We could kill the kid now, dump him overboard, and not be bothered taking care of him for the next month, the bigger of the two men suggested. Nah, too risky. We'll do what we got paid to do. Dump this boy in the jungle and let the natives eat him, or whatever they do over there. We throw him over now, and they'll fish out the body. The law will put two and two together, link him to Strickler, and then he'll roll on us. I know how it works. Aye, aye. Let's tell the chief to light the boilers and inform the captain we're ready to shove off. The two men headed back up the ladder, and the hatch soon shut with a clang that made Evan's bones shudder. He blinked slowly and rose to a sitting position, back against the wall, mind going to all the bad places, the dark passages that most people avoid at any cost. He felt hopeless. The idea of spending weeks on board this awful steamer, heading to such a faraway place, was torturous. He doubted the inhabitants of Madagascar would eat him, but he would not be welcomed. Just another stowaway with no money. He had to get out of there and fight. That was what he'd always done in his life. Evan was a loner, a survivor, and this was going to be one of his biggest wins against all odds, if he could pull it off. Evan looked back at the jagged beam nearby. Slowly, he got to his feet and approached it, still woozy, his head pounding from the brutal blow he'd been dealt hours ago. He got back into the necessary position and resumed sawing at the ropes. Time passed with agonizing slowness, but the ropes were becoming more frayed, wearing away, and that gave him hope. He doubled his efforts, sawing more furiously, sweat dripping down his throbbing head. He could feel the rope was thinning, weakening, Rip. It was done. He rubbed his tender wrists slowly and spun his arms, getting his circulation going again. He felt a great sense of victory. Okay, one problem down. About another fifty to go. Evan glanced at the ladder and took a deep breath, hoping those two sailor goons hadn't locked the hatch behind them. Hopefully. They were so secure in Evan's unconscious state they hadn't bothered. The bruise on his thigh barked at him. That damned guy didn't need to do that. But then again, it might as well have been Arthur Strickler who jabbed his pointy-toed floorshine into Evan's leg. He got to the ladder and started climbing as quietly as he could, trying not to grunt with each step. Slight nausea overcame him. He likely had a mild concussion. Deciding that vomiting would have been too loud, 
he squeezed his eyes shut, took a few deep breaths, and kept climbing. After an eternity, he reached the hatch and was pleasantly surprised when it opened easily. Evan emerged from the hold and climbed out on the blessedly empty deck. The air was chilly. The L.A. harbor tended to cool down at night considerably. The area was relatively bare, displaying only the typical working boat trappings one would expect on a deck. Evan headed to the starboard side railing and looked out over the side. The ship was about a hundred meters from the dock. He swung back around to take in his environment. From the looks of it, he was standing aboard a surplus Liberty ship. The Kaiser shipyards had made over 2,000 of those nautical wonders to help win the war. Evan considered jumping to the black water, wading about 30 feet down. It would have been ice cold. Plus, they'd hear the splash more than likely and be waiting for him at the dock if he survived the jump. A big if, his beleaguered mind reminded him. He wasn't a bad swimmer, but he was no Olympic athlete either. There were no boats tied to the ship he could climb down to, nor any gangplanks led from the ship to the dock. It's jump and swim or stay on board, Evan. He stood there, weighing his options anxiously. A deep groan went through the ship. He could feel the deck vibrate. The boilers were coming online. Hey, you! A voice shouted behind him. Evan looked over his shoulder and spotted Joe, recognizing the voice. Get your butt back here, boy! The burly man broke into a run toward Evan, who ran toward the stern. He saw a gangway that led below, and he hurried down it, many leaping three stairs at a time. He then found another ladder heading down to a lower deck. A gunshot rang out. He heard the bullet ricochet off a few surfaces, just like in the movies. That was a warning. If I wanted to kill you, you'd be dead. Evan didn't care or believe him. He just kept running, then leaped down another ladder that led to the engine room. It was well lit there, but too many stokers were at their respective boilers and snapped their heads Evan's way. Most were Chinese and looked surprised to see him. Evan doubled back to the gangway, which led him to the mess. There he found what had to be the other goon who had captured him, judging by his muscle mass, seated at a table drinking coffee when he spotted Evan hurrying by. He dropped his cup and followed Evan at a full run, soon only a few feet behind him. Evan ran faster than he ever had hit the next ladder he found, and clambered up it, a flood of high-powered adrenaline flooding his body and conquering his sluggish brain. Evan climbed faster than he thought possible. These men meant to kill him, and he had no intention of allowing that to happen. He emerged from the deck and almost collided with Coop, who was dressed in a black suit and fedora. His look was dead serious. He raised his hand a bit, which held some kind of steel contraption and motioned for Evan to get down. The biggest goon emerged from the hatch first, face red with exertion. 
He spotted Coop. So surprised, he stopped in his tracks. Who the hell are you? Some kind of undertaker? He bleated through heaving breaths. Coop didn't answer. He just raised his right hand in a wind-up like a baseball pitcher and threw a massive blue ball of electricity at the goon. The man gaped for an instant, then turned to go back down the ladder in a panicked attempt to escape, but it was too late. The electro-protoplasm swept over the man, paralyzing him just as he reached the hatch. He toppled over and landed on the steel deck below with a sickening crunch. That worked very well, I am happy to say, Coop said, taking a breath. Evan felt a wave of relief, which disintegrated as he looked beyond his friend Coop, seeing a tall, heavy, familiar man step out of the shadows. Put that thing down, or I'll fill you full of lead. It was Joe, the other creep. Coop quickly turned, and Evan lunged after him. Joe, confused over which one to shoot at, aimed at Evan, and then lost his footing when the ship lurched forward. He fired and missed. Clear out of the way, Evan, Coop commanded, and then threw another ball of electricity from his metal contraption at Joe, who flinched back but was still hit full on. Body laced with electricity. He fought like a man trying to ward off a swarm of bees. Finally, he staggered to the rail and toppled over the side, splashing into the harbor. He didn't come back up for air. Let's go, Coop yelled to Evan and hurried to the accommodation ladder down the ship's port side. Evan, paralyzed with awe, didn't move at first. A bit more alacrity on your part, Evan. That would be helpful. He snapped out of it and followed Coop to the ladder. Evan noticed at the bottom was a rowboat tied to the bottom step. Coop got in, and Evan sat before him in the bobbing boat. Coop manned the oars and pulled them toward the docks. How many others? Coop asked. Evan shook his head. I don't know. Those were the only two I saw. Coop rode faster. More than likely, there are more. I came as quickly as I could. Evan felt the device Coop gave him earlier in his pocket, realizing that was how Coop knew he was there. Coop noticed rope bracelets on Evan's wrists. I take it they bound you. Evan nodded. Realizing that he had escaped whatever ghastly fate Arthur Strickler had designed for him, he knew then that if he was going to stick around for a while and find a way home, or work on a way to live out his days in this time period, he was going to have to have eyes in the back of his head. Speaking of his head, his was throbbing. I tracked you from Beverly Hills to San Pedro using the monitor I gave you. I knew there was no way on earth you'd come to this godforsaken place on your own, Coop said. They reached the shore, and Coop tied up the rowboat to a dock hidden among several tugboats. I doubt this fine vessel's owner minded me borrowing it for an hour, he remarked, and pulled Evan from the boat to the dock. As soon as I saw you were headed this way, I got in the car and hurried down here. I saw Strickler's car leave the area and deduced which ship they'd taken you to by simple process of elimination. 
How? Evan asked, intrigued. Simple. Strickler is a cheap hustler. He surrounded himself with the dregs of society. People of that ilk do not travel on tankers, which are expensive, or even modern cargo vessels. They travel on rust buckets, like that one. I found the oldest, dirtiest ship in the harbor and made plans to board her. Despite the wonderful novel by Agatha Christie, most killers don't travel on the Orient Express. They travel in war surplus liberty ships with names like the SS Cyclops. Evan cast a glance at the Liberty ship that was now up to steam and slowly heading out of the harbor. The name emblazoned on the forecastle, S.S. Cyclops. What about the goons? Evan asked without a lot of sympathy. What of them? If you for one second feel any sympathy for them, remember what they were more than likely going to do to you without remorse. I didn't know you had it in you, Coop was all Evan could come up with. You're my friend. I will not allow anyone to harm you. And yes, I have it in me. We all do. Coop answered simply. They made their way to Coop's Dodge, which he had wisely parked in a darkened area behind a seaman's paymaster store and a bar called the Sea Hag. Evan climbed in the car, countless questions still swirling in his brain. He watched Coop carefully place the metal gizmo that produced the electronic fireballs into a carrying case that looked like an old-fashioned suitcase. How'd you come up with that? Evan asked. I have you to thank for this. Don't know what to call it yet, though for now, Evan's lifesaver has a good ring to it. You had suggested I weaponize the electric ball trick I showed you. The idea stuck with me, and I put this together in a few hours. Good thing there weren't any more of those miscreants. This machine is only good for two discharges, then it must be recharged for hours. Lucky for us, there were only two goons, and my aim was true. Evan was astonished. His friend had basically engineered a sci-fi ray gun and saved his life with it. And this was not sci-fi. This was real. The thing actually worked and was extremely effective from what he could see. I'm overwhelmed, Coop. You've made something so complex, intricate, Evan muttered. It's not overwhelming at all when you consider all the things I learned from Nicola, Coop replied matter-of-factly. Since arriving here, I have learned more utilizing technology from this era. You'll see in time. He cranked the engine, and they headed north to Los Angeles, along the Arroyo Seco Parkway and SR-11 as evidently there was no I-110 in 1946, just expansive boulevards that were largely empty at this time of night. Even the red car trolleys were not operating at 4 a.m., and what few vehicles were on the road seemed to be mostly LAPD black and whites. Coop promised he'd pick Evan up at 7.30 to get him to the studio by 8.30.